Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek. I'm here with Michael Carlino. How are you doing? Doing well. Good to be back. Glad to have you here again. And at the end of our last conversation, we, I forget if it was recorded or after when we were chatting afterward, but I think you had commented that we talked about some things that were, that we probably weren't going to disagree on. And we talked about, well, should we go into something where we might disagree? And we had, sorry for all the listeners, but we had an unrecorded conversation between and decided, let's talk about population, which is, I think, for both of us, very important issues and coming from different perspectives. I think that I could sum up the previous conversation saying, I think we look forward to recording and hearing each other out and learning about each other. Maybe we'll get an argument. I don't know. But uh, we'll see. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I think we started that one. And I started talking about abortion and or not abortion, the conception, like when life begins. Mm-hmm. And but then that wasn't the issue for you. You were you were saying that you had looked at some of the data that I talked about before and came to different conclusions. Now I don't remember exactly what. Do you remember? Yeah, it actually wasn't related to concession. I mean, we talked a good bit about when life begins and the need to sustain it and the debate surrounding that. But I think uh, you had more of a I don't know if I call it, I, I wouldn't necessarily describe it as neutral, but you had more of like you could see both sides in the discussion, right? And so and then from that it flowed into the data. And specifically with the data where it came up where I was pointing out was reading different UN studies and other things like that is that most countries in the world problem is not overpopulation, but depopulation. Uh, So I think that that's one of the areas that we were specifically talking through that we had a different uh, take on. I think, and this this is more anecdotal from my study of the topic, but I often find people in urban areas or people in cities a lot more worried about overpopulation than people where I'm from in like, let's say Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where I grew up, where I had a 750 acre farm I grew up on. Because people in those areas are looking around and going, there's more cows than there are people. We're not worried about like overpopulation. Whereas when you're in a city and, and I've lived in cities now, my wife lived in DC for a while. So I visited quite a bit there. I can understand where experientially, if you're living in a city, why you would see more of a problem with overpopulation. So your experience every day is seeing a crowded area, lots of traffic, people, you know, basically having to like wait in line, massive lines, you know, maneuver around each other on the sidewalks. I just think that in general, the areas and the context that you are in will actually play into how you read this data and, and how big of a problem you, you do find uh, population uh, to be. So, so that, again, more anecdotal, but I think it's significant because when we come into these conversations, we bring our experiences with us. So we want to have objective conversations about the actual big problem, but we can't discount the experiences that we individually have and how they affect our take on this matter. And then, of course, for me, as we're going to get into more undoubtedly, is our understand like my understanding of how scripture puts forward uh, humans and population, how we ought to think about those things as well, which I put my all my eggs in that basket more than even my own experiences. But yeah, I, I, do, I do want to mention that. I think it's crucial to point out that if you were to take some farmer from where I'm from and sit him down with someone who might be more progressive, who's been in a city, there's just going to be so much dissonance in, in that conversation already because of what they're looking at every day. And that, that's important. So, Well, certainly with uh, climate change, which is a separate issue, or I mean, mm-hmm. some connected, but some separate. People in warmer climates yeah. tend to think, I mean, when there's a heat wave, people are like, oh, maybe it's global warming. And when there's a cold wave, they think <laughs> maybe it's not such a big deal. Yeah. And yep. 
I mean, the science perspective would say, well, that's one experience, but you got to combine it with lots of other experiences to get full, you know, what we call data as opposed to anecdote. Yeah. And, and even with that, like, I think if you go back, I think not only just anecdote and studying the whole world, but then you have to study history and it and go back as far as we can with observable data to see like, you know, in the Middle Ages, how cold was it then? Do we have any data there? Then we'll, then we get more towards the, the 20th century. What was, what was it then? And you can track and see that, you know, all throughout history, there have been, there've been waves of times where people were really worried about it being cold. People were really worried about it warming up. And, you know, there has been ebbs and flows throughout history. So like, Putting that data together and connecting how history functions is crucial in these matters. And, and just to mention that, I think it's important to say that with Christians, we, in Genesis 9, after the fall, what we see in the Garden of Eden, God makes a covenant with Noah. So, you know, the, you have the flood that destroys everyone on earth. You have Noah and his eight family or eight on the ark who survive. God makes a covenant with Noah in that story. And there he says that for as long as the earth remains, there will be seed time and harvest. There will be seasons. And so as Christians, you know, we see that and we say there's going to be for as long as we see until Jesus returns and restores the earth and, and you have the final judgment and all these other things that Christians believe in. We see that God is promising stability in the earth. And so there, though there might be ebbs and flows, one of the fundamental things we as Christians aren't worried about with those things is that God is going to lose control of the earth or something like that. So there, there are tenets and or central tenets in our minds as we engage with that data in and of itself, too, from a biblical worldview. When you were saying earlier that someone in a, in a crowded area would be, would be more prone to say there's too many, and I guess the flip side to that would be someone in a not crowded area would, might be more prone to saying that there's not enough people. Mm-hmm. But then you were saying, I thought you were going to say, but you have to look at the data. But then you said, you said something like that, but then mm-hmm. you said, but I put all my eggs in the basket of scripture, mm-hmm. which says that the data you don't look at, you didn't say you put most of your eggs in that basket. You said all of them. Yeah. And what I mean by that fundamentally is not that I overthrow data, but that scripture is my ultimate authority on these. Now, and to be clear, I, all might've been uh, too strong of a word. What I want to communicate is that I do not believe that the Bible is going to be in error regarding science. But even throughout history, we have examples with people like Galileo and his discovery of, um, what was he relating? I'm blanking on now as I'm thinking on the moment, was the gravity that he was involved with it? And, and even, well, the earth, the earth and the sun and, and the earth and, and at that time. Yeah, Galileo looked up and saw moons orbiting Saturn mm-hmm. and thought, okay, if something's orbiting something else, not everything's orbiting us. So maybe yes. we're not at the center. Right, exactly. And which went against the long held view of not just the church, but everyone. <laughs> and, and so you had both the church and even other scientists really pushing back on him. And we as Christians are, are the scriptures themselves don't explicitly say that the, the earth is the center. There were misreadings of texts and some misapplications of things that we believe now. But there are times where science might clarify something for us. And we have to be careful to not, as Christians, demand that our reading of a certain scientific matter be, it's either the Bible or science, because sometimes people communicate it that way. So what I want to say is, when I put my eggs in the basket of scripture, is that as I think about the world and the way it functions, is that when there are explicit things said in the scriptures, like uh, God saying, be fruitful and multiply, and that uh, humans are a blessing to the world, and that God actually condemns when the in the Tower of Babel story in Genesis 11, where the humans don't spread across the earth, but instead pile up together and try to build into the heavens. 
those are, are laying the ground for, groundwork as a Christian for how we think about how God desires society to function and population to work and to spread out across the earth. And so those things are fundamental to how I'm going to engage a problem such as, uh, or a discussion such as population. That's more what I was trying to communicate. So I appreciate your uh, clarifying question there on that though. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious about a lot of things. <laughs> so I've yeah. got a bunch of questions. When you say be fruitful, multiply, and humans are a blessing on the earth, mm-hmm. that tells me, do I conclude that more is always better? Yes. So throughout, throughout the scriptures, the idea of, of handicapping or taking away uh, children or seeking to end the population growth is always looked at with scorn in, in every context that we see it. Uh, beyond that, what we'd want to say, even as, as Christians too, is that, and this is also engaging with data and synthesizing it and making sense of it with uh, the scriptures, is, is the world in threat of overpopulation and other things. So that, that could be further conversation, which we would conclude is no, it's not. We see depopulation everywhere. We still have, I think we talked about this in our, our private conversation we had, but still even in the country we live in here in America, the United States, uh, we have four, between, you know, to take a more conservative estimate, it's 41% from what I've seen, but it's as high as 47% of this country is still unlived in. And so, you know, we think about population size, how much we can spread out. I think a lot of our, our problems are directly related to the fact that we're not spreading out as we should, that we're clumping up, and that's affecting how we're reading data as well. Because there is something to be said for the effect that what cities do in terms of local pollution or the buildup that happens when everyone's living close together. So, but yeah, to answer, to come back and answer the, the first part of, of your question, though, when scripture puts forward human life, it puts it forward in the uh, Genesis 1 in the creation story, that humans are the apex of creation, that they're to be fruitful, multiplied, to expand across the earth, to take dominion over the earth. And every time you see in scripture any threat to humans that are seeking to like in the story of Israel, when Pharaoh wants to kill the male children or Herod wanted to kill the male children in these contexts, it's always looked at with, with horror, the idea of slowing down uh, human population growth or taking away human life. So, And I'm just going to, I'm, I'm so curious because I haven't, I haven't engaged on this, Yeah, but by all means, if you have questions for me, ask me. Yeah, no, you can ask. And I, if I think of anything, I'm happy to yeah, ask you stuff. When you said, when we look at the question, are we overpopulating? Mm-hmm. I think that the answer would be no. The answer would be no. I mean, it, could there be a case where the answer would be yes? No, I don't, I don't see that. So something I've been thinking of since our last conversation was yeah. my background in math. I can think of really big numbers. <laughs> right now we're at 7.9 billion, which seems, which seems to me too high. But some say, no, we're going to go up to 10, 11 billion, and it looks like we'll level off there. And uh, some people look at, at their data and say, we'll be okay. We can figure it out. It might be difficult, but we can make it. Yeah. But there's much bigger numbers than 11 billion. There's 100 billion. There's a trillion. There's a quadrillion. Mm-hmm. There's, and I mean, there's a certain number of atoms in the planet. Take that number. Would that be, if we had that number of humans, I don't know how it could work on Earth. I don't, it doesn't really make sense to me to, to imagine that. Would, another, would more still be better? So that hypothetical, we as Christians would say, would be an impossibility because of our Christian worldview. And what I mean by that, to be specific, Mm-hmm. is in that Noahic covenant, which is Genesis 9, which I mentioned earlier, God mentions that human life will not, will not go beyond 120 years. What he's getting at is that going up into the time of the flood in the book of Genesis, you have these really long human years. I mean, you have 
900 years, 800 years, things like that. And there's lots of debate over how literal those years are, things like that. We don't have to get into that discussion here. But what's interesting is once you get to the Noahic covenant, God says man's life will not extend beyond 120 years. And what we just, traditionally what's been understood that within the Christian church is not that that's saying no one will ever live past 120 years. What he's saying is there will, there's going to be a drastic decrease. In, and what we see throughout history is most, most humans not living past 100, I mean, 98, 99% of us not living past 120 years, I, I would say would be, would be a correct way to take that. And what's important about that is in a post-fall world where there's sin, where there's corruption, and the fact that God is limiting the years, that actually decreases the, uh, what, what it, from a, again, taking science and scripture point together about the idea of infinite humans, like so filling the earth that now no one fits. Because of the fact that human life is short and there are there is death in this world that and some people obviously aren't living even close to 120 years, you know, and especially middle ages things like that, not living nearly as long. And so we believe that the way that God has ordered this world, the way that He is sovereignly reigning and ruling, and that one He would He would it, it's not going to happen, but two, the very fact that the, the effects of sin, the effects that it has on shortened life and things like that will not allow that to happen. So we don't see infinite growth. It might be a mathematical possibility in other arenas, but given the the very nature of how humanity lives, dies, and functions now, that, we, that wouldn't be a, a Christian construct that's possible. I think what you're saying is that, yes, there could be situations where be, there'd be so many people that it would be impossible, but it wouldn't happen because we, there'd be no way to get there because God has a has a way of so God is not it's not like God is just not going to let it and we're we're trusting in like fiat or just faith like hey this is impossible cuz we think it's not what i'm saying is the very effect of sin and death and the fact that people aren't living forever and that there's dying out and that they're repli- and then other humans will obviously be born down the road and they will die is that though we've seen market growth i mean it's pretty amazing we've seen uh world population almost double, if I, if I remember correctly, even in the last couple hundred- In my lifetime, yeah. Yeah, within the last hundred years even. And so what, what we want to understand with that, though, is that throughout history, that ebbs and flows. So I, we're not sitting here worried about that, that possibility. And even as we see growth happening, again, there is still plenty of space. Like the space is not the issue. You know, and, and so we're not even like the- the uh, hypothetical that it would take to get to to have humanity overwhelming other humanity and like now there's nowhere to live is something that's just not even on the scope. It's not even to, to be something taken, what we would say, not even taken seriously as a concern. So, all right, that brings up other questions, but I want to stick back with the, this. I'm still not sure I get that if the people can have babies, but there's the effect of sin and there's the effect of uh, that lowers people's lifetimes. So, if humans keep growing the population, mm-hmm. then because of our nature, we will also in- limit our own growth because of how we're built. Well, it's not just how we're built. It's the effect that what I'm getting at is like, so let's just say so that to give an example. If you were able to live a thousand years and keep having children until you were a thousand and you had a lot of people, uh-huh. the growth in that is that, I mean, astronomical, right? But what you have in humanity, and I mean, I, I think we all agree on this, is that there's limitations that are that are part of our part of how we are. Like most women are what, like from the age of teenage years up through 40, 45, typically mm-hmm. is about the extent of, 
of childbearing years, like taking top-notch numbers, you're probably saying, I mean, what's the world record? I think like in terms of children, somewhere 25, 30, you know, something that we've had wow. reported, <laughs> yeah. you know, which is crazy. But that, and that's hot. Like most families aren't getting, you know, past, I would say, you know, we think 10's a lot now or 8's a lot or even 5's a lot. And so just the reality of the world, the way it works, the effects, again, we think with, with sin just on labor being longer, harder on women's bodies, some women not being able to have children just because of something genetically off or something something wrong there, or even men who are, uh, if they have a partner, who are not able to uh, create life uh, through, their, through other issues. Like there's issues that are stopping people that are already into place. You have limitations on how long the childbearing age range is even in for, for women. And then beyond that, you have people not living beyond, on average, what, what is it now, 68 Years is the average, if I remember the last time I. Oh, depends by country okay. and age. Yeah, depends. I'm going by our country. Yeah. I think is is, but but like those severe limitations that we even see that we're not going to simply excel. Like as Christians, we see that's part of our what it is to live in this fallen world. Those in and of themselves cap off uh, and and prevent this, you know, atomization. So that's what I, that's what I'm working out is the reality of of that in our world. I think I see. It. Let me try this out because I was. I've been wondering when I, I've read about. There's a couple cultures that I write about in my in my upcoming book. One of them uh-huh. is Hawaii. After the Polynesians found it, roughly a thousand years ago, mm-hmm. I think they found it roughly a thousand years ago, which is like an amazing thing to people in like an outrigger canoe going a thousand miles in the ocean. I, I I'm getting Incredible. details wrong, but somehow they did it. Yeah, and my understanding is that for something like. 500 to 1,000 years until Captain Cook found them and told the rest of the world about them, there was a period when they were trading with Polynesia. Mm-hmm. And then there was a period when they were on their own. As I understand, the time when they're trading with Polynesia, the archaeological record shows, and I haven't looked at the papers, I, I just talk, I, but I did have a guess, has the guy whose book I get this from on this podcast okay. is from um, uh, The Once in Future Earth, or Once in Future World. I was going to... Anyway, J.B. McKinnon. Mm-hmm. And he said that the archaeological records show that when they were still trading with Polynesia, the ability of those islands to sustain life was decreasing. How they know this, I don't know. And uh, I could be wrong, but this is my understanding. Mm-hmm. Then they stopped trading and the archaeological records show that the, it was increasing. Uh, the, the ability for the islands to sustain life increased, which my takeaway is that when you don't know that there's a safety valve, you're like, let's steward this land. But that's speculation. Well, and there's also, let me just say with that, there's also the effect that if they're, if they're kind of cut off and then you start trading disease spread, bringing back things that they aren't, they don't have any herd immunity or any, anything for. So I think that there's, it's not just stewarding the land. That's part of it, mm-hmm. but there's a bigger conversation to be said for once cultures start interacting, especially if you're having a civilized country with more of one that's uncivilized might sound a little harsh, but just not, you know, not living in community necessarily with others. There, there are direct effects that happen just with that interaction. Yeah, I think historically, I think the civilized countries bring diseases to the other ones. Potentially, or you could, or you could argue that the civilized countries, in bringing them, also have the ability to fight those things off. So, yeah, it really comes down. Like, I don't want to say, well, that's because they're they're civilized. I think what you have is differing areas and differing immune systems and all that when you get into those discussions and how the how that affects and whether you have the the base of doctors or medicine or or all that to actually help get through those situations. So I think a lot of the big communicable diseases came jumped to us from animals. 
when we live close to them in agriculture, then they would jump from cows or chickens to us. Yeah, I mean, most, I mean, I think this is proven. This isn't my field of, of study, but from what I've read is even things like uh, with COVID now, but most upper rep- upper respiratory diseases are with you are with humanity whenever forever basically once they enter because they're uh, surviving on animals and a lot of the ones that we domesticate do so yeah i would i think that's right and anyway, it's going back a step yeah no totally sorry i just wanted to point that out because it's i think cause sometimes my pushback as a conservative is a lot of times we make it seem like well civilization is the problem and people just living off nature are the good ones. And I don't think that's the case. I don't think it's a problem necessarily. And I think it's good to live off nature and to have the skill to do so. But civilization, as a Christian, we see that as actually God calls us to create culture and to civilize and to cultivate. And I, so I, I, as a Christian, I want to be very clear that I wouldn't agree that, well, the civilized people are the problem at all. Like, I'm going to propose tabling that because yeah. it sounds very interesting to, to take up. The reason I brought up the Hawaiians was that when Captain mm-hmm. Cook arrived there, they estimate there were about 300,000 people living there. Okay. So for 500 to 1,000 years to reach 300,000, they easily could have gone much higher if, in terms of if they just grew exponentially. But they didn't. So somehow they leveled off. And I was always curious, how did that happen? Mm-hmm. Were they consciously doing it or what? And then, then I also read this book, also uh, whose author I had on the podcast, James Sussman's Affluence Without Abundance. He talked about the San Bushman in Southern Africa. And the archaeological record shows that they lived there for something like 250,000 years, maybe 300,000 years as homo sapiens. And how did they stay? How did the population stay level? And I kept asking people and no one knows the answer. Finally, I found a paper. And is this the answer? I don't know. But what I took away from the paper was some of what you were talking about. They found out that because of their lifestyle and diet, which apparently is very healthy, the, the life-bearing age of a woman is, li- is less than here. And also, they're, uh, they nurse until like four or five years old. And yeah. that's apparently keeps people, it keeps a woman from conceiving. And what were some other things? There was, they're very active. And so periods get missed a lot. Mm-hmm. The net result was that the average woman, I'm going to get the numbers a bit off. The average woman would give birth to five children of which two would pass adulthood. Mm-hmm. And just by living their regular lives, they would have two children per woman, per couple. Mm-hmm. And in other words, they stayed level. And as they, as they appear to have for something like 250,000, 300,000 years, they mm-hmm. didn't plan it. They didn't try it. They, didn't, they just lived how they lived and it worked out. Mm-hmm. Now, there may have been other things, but that, I don't know. That this is, it seems plausible. And I, I think that you're saying that the way that we're set up, we're going to level off. We're gonna, it's going to work out. We don't have to worry about that part. That's set up for us. I appreciate that. Sounds like you're. Rep- I think you're representing what I'm trying to communicate well there and summarizing it. So thanks. And yeah, I would agree. And the reason. And and so what I'm not trying to say is, well, I'm not worried about it because God's got this. So we're going to be irresponsible. Like if we're just going to be irresponsible, and not care about that because that's not that not what we're communicating. What I'm communicating is that God is good. That He's over hu- human history. And even though humans have rebelled against Him, that we're fallen. That ages have decreased because of the effects of those, those realities that in his goodness, he is not like, we don't have the contract of, oh man, we also have to worry about that. We're going to destroy the world, overpopulate all these other things. It actually, we, we believe works it, itself out and under his care, we would say in those ways. So, yeah. So I think you're capturing it well. And, and we're not just saying that, that God is there like, well, he'll just stop it 
somehow magically, but that there's actual like patterns that are observable in history and the way things work that are his way that are part of his plan and how those things come to fruition. So, yeah. Is some of the sinning that you talk about that lowers ages is some of that would be disease and pollution? Part of it. Yeah, part. Absolutely. So the Christian worldview is that God created the world good. We do. There's some debate on this on whether animal death was a thing or not before the fall. There's some discussion uh, within Christian camps about that. But ultimately, what we would say is that sin brought about death and that God then, after Adam and Eve sinned, in the biblical text, we are told that he tells Adam, whose job was to uh, cultivate the garden to work the land that was just created, uh, God tells Adam in the text that in toil, you will now labor over the thorns of the ground. And so what Christians have for centuries believed is that what one of the effects of sin and, and its punishment and what it's done in this earth is it's made it harder to bring about nature. We would say before the fall, is probably uh, the biblical text seems to indicate significantly easier, significantly more fruitful, because one of the things that's also related to that is God then tells Eve, Adam's, Adam's wife in this text, that her childbearing will now be more, far more painful. And so there's two things that are directly affected there. You have both population, which we're talking about, but also climate is challenged by the effects of sin. So the Christian worldview is the difficulties that we're having related to these climate discussions are, from our perspective and from the biblical worldview, directly attributable to the effects of sin on society. So it's, And then there's the effects that personal sin have on ending life. There are ways that humans can live irresponsibly. And obviously, I mean, there's lots of examples of fear. If you're driving your car 150 miles an hour recklessly, or if you if you're drinking uh, if you're drinking you know tons tons of alcohol without any care, if you're smoking 10 packs of cigarettes a day, or you know you name it, if you're living irresponsibly, you will also shorten your lifespan too. So there's you know personal things you can do to yourself to do that, but there's also meta big scale in the Christian worldview effects that sin has had on the productivity of human labor labor on the earth as well as even population and, and childbearing. So. People going into cities, lowering their own lifespans lead to, would that be something like, okay, if you smoke 10 packs of cigarettes a day, then you're going to, you're going to die young, probably. Right. And probably. you brought yeah. it on yourself. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there's a world here that's good and you've deliberately chosen to manipulate in a way that's not so good for you, not so healthy. Right. And people living in cities, well, people who lived in Babylon brought it upon themselves. And if we don't learn our lessons from them, then we would naturally get a certain density, population density, that would be healthier. But if we choose to live in cities, we've kind of brought it on ourselves. But it's also a natural regulation. Yeah, it naturally regulates our, our population that way by things that if we do do things that would, that, that would be sinning, then it'll shorten our lifestyles or shorten our yeah. lifespans. And let me be clear so that I'm not, I don't know if this is what you, you think I meant by something earlier, but I want to clarify this. It's not a sin to live in a city. Right. So I'm not saying that. So, so. But it's I'm probably not, easier I, to sin if you are in the city. I, I mean, I guess anyone <laughs> can sin anywhere you want. I, I, yeah. We believe as Christians, like if I'm alone by myself, sin still get Like I, I have the, the, what Christians believe we have a sin nature. I can struggle with my own temptations with no one else around me. So it's not, you know, other, always other people's fault. There's certainly external temptations, but I have my, so many of my own internal problems even now. So that's, yeah, totally agree with that. But the reality is, yeah, going to a city is not 
wicked in and of itself at all. I mean, I live in Louisville, which is technically a city, right? If, if, I, if I thought that in the biblical worldview that there would be a sin to live here, I wouldn't move here. So I just want to be clear about that, <laughs> like, because that would be a drastic misrepresentation. Yeah, I didn't mean that, but I appreciate yeah, the question. Yeah, yeah, I, wanted, I just want to be clear because I wouldn't want a listener thinking, oh, well, okay, Michael's saying that, that that's a sin. I, I do think we as a culture need to think well about the effects that, of, that cities have ecologically, both morally and I would say beyond that, the effects that they have on um, the climate. Because in general, if you go to a place with, that's more spread out and, and you have people living off the land, uh, there tends to be far more health than not. So I'm not saying that's a sin or a non nonsense issue uh, directly, but you know, in general, there's a tendency. Like I used to live in a very impoverished part of Louisville for a little while, and there was just so much trash in the streets. People just didn't care. There was there was almost a cultural reinforcement of not taking care of things, and so there might be some tendencies, but there's also some really clean cities that are well-kept. And so it really depends on the people in the area that are making those decisions and whether they're going to reinforce taking care of those areas that matters. But one thing to bring up with the population, that thing we talked about in our private conversation, I think is worth bringing in here to build off of what we've started on, is that Christians will never see having children or having a big family as the sin problem or as the issue with climate or the effects on it. What we would be willing to have conversations on, what we would agree with, uh, and I know we'd agree on this on, is the amount of, like we've talked about Amazon and its effect, Walmart and its effect, other things, all these big companies that make a lot of really cheap products that a lot of people are buying that die, you know, the products don't work pretty soon, then it just builds up trash you know, we throw it. We don't know where it goes. Nobody knows. It's, you know, goes to some landfill and it's just overfilling. And, and and I think that we could say that our materialism and the fact that we all and I, I include myself in this as I try to improve and think well and and steward this world well. How much do we actually need? And in our culture in America, in particular, I think that we have uh, we we just have a, such a higher standard of. I don't even. Sometimes we say we have a high standard of living. Sometimes I think it's just we have a we have a a very um, junk filled standard of living and 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 things like that. So I do think we have major problems to deal with with how many more humans there are in the world. But I don't think humans are the root issue. I do think that if we were to talk about more contentment with what you have and 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 living on on less as a culture in particular, I think we might have more agreement there. That's not to say that things or having things are evil or sinful. But we do need to have conversations about how much is necessary and also the effect that we ha- that our materialism has had on on society and, you know, filling up areas, too. So just wanted to bring that in for conversation's sake. Yeah, Jonathan, and I talk about this a lot, uh, Hardesty, and yeah. the word gluttony comes up a fair amount, and mm-hmm. which is not that's not a property of the stuff. It's a property of our hearts. Yes. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah. A gluttony. Biblically speaking, because a lot of people think of gluttony and what they think is, oh, that person eats a lot. But really, gluttony is a disordered desire that is not content in life. So, you know, I think some people, for example, there's there's actual disorders related to stress eating, right? Uh, and things like that. that or, or even a lot of people who really struggle with depression will, will eat a lot to, to cope or some uh, and things like that. And so what you have there is not a problem with 
necessarily the fact that they're eating a lot of things. It's the disordered desire that then causes those deeper problems. So, you know, to go with your quote that you talk about, systemic change begins with personal transformation. You know, learning as, as Christians, we believe that we believe you need to be saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And from the, that foundation, uh, you can begin actually being changed and having the heart motivations changed that would uh, enable you to not be owned by your desire to eat or to drink or your desire with lust or, or all these other scriptural things that we would say are, are sinful. Disorder desire leads to bigger cultural problems. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, it doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. So yeah, I think we pretty strongly agree on the overconsumption, gluttonous. Yeah. And yeah. So back to people living in, an, if someone lives in a place that they consider overcrowded, Yes. And they think they could move away. What if they wanted to influence where they were and they felt like we're overcrowded, we're, we're Babylon here, we're approaching it. Mm-hmm. What Should they do anything? Could they do anything about it? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm all for the individuals uh, making informed decisions and seeking to bring about change. Ab- absolutely. Now, you know, you and I are probably going to have some maybe different applications as to what those changes would look like to bring about good society potentially. But yeah, within the Christian worldview, yeah, the idea of making a definitive change and seeing seeing uh, for, so that others would flourish as well. Not just you, but you want to see society be blessed and to, to be able to, to grow. So absolutely. like I'm not saying like, oh man, you look around you, and it feels overpopulated. It feels, you know, and you, you just go, well, the best possible thing is for me to move out to some random farm and do micro farming the rest of my life. And then I've just saved the world by that. I'm not saying that's the only solution. Like there are, like I said, it's not a sin to live in a city. It's it's a good, like if you go move into a city and uh, have a lot more friends that are close by and have close community, that's a good life. Right? So, yeah. From that perspective, so I look at the data and it looks like there's too many people on the earth that, mm-hmm. that we've overshot what can, we can sustain. It's because of fossil fuels, we can sustain more people temporarily than we could without fossil fuels, but the fossil fuels are polluting and ultimately causing death that I think will outpace the life. But if we found a way to, through voluntary non-coercive means, brought the numbers back down again, then we could avoid the death coming from pollution and possibly the wars over resources that might come. So when you say someone might want flourishing elsewhere, like that's, if my read is that you would say, Josh sees data differently than I do and interprets there to be too many, but his goals are nonetheless noble, given his view of the world. I would say that your goals are consistent. Noble would be too strong. And what I mean by that is Christians, we do believe that looking into non-coercive means or seeking to compel others to reconsider having children would not be good. That would be what we call sinful. So I wouldn't say it's noble. I think it's consistent with your worldview to do such a thing, but I would disagree. So 
couple of levels to it. You started with uh, the fossil fuels. I disagree with fossil fuels being an evil that are taking out, or or not an evil, but you know, uh, a pollution that are that is only going to outpace humans. I you know, I've studied fossil fuels briefly. It's been a couple of years now, but I did some projects on it a couple of years ago, and my take on the the data is very different. I see them as actually they're in many ways moral and good for society if used responsibly. So we would have some differences there. First level. Then second level, you mentioned population and your take on it. We're going to disagree on there being too, too many humans and, and the need for non-coercive means. And so like the question that I would then have is, well, if you're just going to say non-coercive, you're going to talk to people and hope to compel them. Eventually, society, as it adopts that, is going to begin doing laws to reinforce that. That's what we do. We begin legislating such things because a society determines this is a good and we need to do this. And that I would disagree with. So I think it's inevitable that eventually it becomes coercive when you begin that train of thought, even with the best of intentions in mind. So there would be multiple levels that I would dissent from. So I think you're consistent. It makes sense based on how, you know, what I've in the conversations we've had, but I would, I would disagree and I, I wouldn't see it as noble. I use fossil fuels. So I think I would agree on using them responsibly. I mean, I grease the chain on my bike yes. with oil. <laughs> yeah. Although I have some coconut oil. I'm wondering what would happen if I put that on instead. <laughs> I think it wouldn't work as well, but it might. I don't know. I'll try it. Yeah. Interesting. I have, there you go. I have this little thing of oil and it's going to run out eventually. <laughs> and then I'll put on some, I don't know. I have this olive oil that I'm not eating. So I may stick, you know, anyway, there's oils that aren't from the ground or right. sorry, they're from the ground, but from plants. Totally. Mm-hmm. And, and actually, I guess before oil, fossil fuel oil, there's whale oil for a lot of stuff too, although I'm not going to catch any whales. <laughs> that's also, that's probably also a little pricier too, I'd imagine now, but I don't know. I haven't looked into it. <laughs> well, I'm sure it's, I, it's probably mostly illegal in most places. Seriously. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. I didn't even think of it. Yeah. Good point. I, mean, I guess if it beached itself, maybe you could, I don't know what the <laughs> rules are. If a beached whale can you use the, the blubber from it. I don't know. But that I'm going to go to the grave without knowing the answer to that question. <laughs> Yeah. So I would say responsible use of it makes sense too. Mm-hmm. I mean, at one point it was, at one point it was like on the ground. There were like puddles of it. I mean, when I went to the La Brea tar pits, that was fossil fuels that dinosaurs just got stuck in. Mm-hmm. And so it used to be just lying around and we weren't like going through like miles of ocean, then through miles of dirt to get to oil, which we then refine. So I think we're, I think that there is conceivable responsible use of it. I think we're way past it. And there's definitely irresponsible use of it. And I think we're in that territory. But in, in terms of from a systemic, from a, a, an abstract perspective, yeah, I also agree that there's, there's a line and we could be on one side or another of between yeah. responsible or irresponsible. And I mean, when I look at coercive, I mean, there's lots of laws. So a law promoting more children would not be a problem because there's lots of that. Correct. And I also, yeah, in line with... Uh... So what we believe as Christians, according to Romans 13, is that the role of the government is to promote the good and to restrict the evil. And a public good, a communal good, is having children, raising them in responsibility, all those things, like having, having babies, having families, like the, all the studies that you see on the goodness of family units and what they've done throughout history and having children in, in well-established homes, things like that are remarkable. It's almost unassailable in my, my estimation as I read all of these things. And also, I think it's just validating what the scriptures teach on that. And so I would say that the, the government ought to encourage and promote insofar as it possibly can, having children and all of its tax codes, all that thing, the benefits that it offers, 
And I would, and I would, so yeah, hundred percent behind it. Yeah. There's a lot of ones that promote babies, even not in a family though. How does that fit in? Sorry. So baby, baby's not a family. What do you mean? I think there's a lot of laws that their net effect is that they promote having babies in or out of wedlock to have single mothers, I guess also single fathers supporting that. Yeah. And Christians wouldn't be as much. I mean, we don't look at the problem as being the children or, or things like that or having humans, but we do believe as Christians in going back to in Genesis one through three, you have the institution of marriage and the family, what we see and other things like that. We do see that as defending that and putting that forward and giving benefits towards attracting people to that good is necessary for a social order and a well-ordered society. When we look at the world around us right now falling apart in many ways because the family unit has been, we believe as Christians, under siege for the last however many years and things like the, things like the sexual revolution and all the other things of the last 50, 60 years have been causing what we believe a huge societal detriment. So signs of overpopulation outside. <laughs> yeah, right. I hear the I hear the trucks. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. So we believe the government. We would say the government ought to. You know, not just not just it's a good idea to think about, but the, the role of government ought to celebrate and endorse having children, raising them in families, all those things, supporting families, and to to then say, well, it would be better to not be having children. We would be you know, completely antithetical to that thought. So. so what's the view on having children unmarried outside of a family? Or would a single mother with a, with a couple of kids be in a family? Or does a family mean mother, father, assuming, I mean, someone dies, that's one thing, but if. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, naturally we, we want to endorse uh, having, we believe in uh, monogamous heterosexual marriage is what we're going to be endorsing from the Christian worldview. I mean, this has been since our, you know, since the beginning of our faith from Genesis on, it's ratified all through the New Testament that we want to endorse having a husband, wife, lifelong partnership, and the fruit of that partnership being children and, and raising them. So we wouldn't say, oh my goodness, if you have children outside of marriage, you're just a, you're, you know, somehow deeply immoral. We think there's immorality that happened in bringing about the life, but we would um, seek to protect. I mean, in, in the local churches that I've been a part of my whole life, we have a lot of times where single single mothers will come to us and we'll look to help them and provide you know stuff for the children and, and, and meet needs and things like that. But that ought not be endorsed is what we would say. So I'm thinking of, of um, another guest on the podcast was Bill Ryerson, who's the head of the uh, Population Media Center. Okay. He seems very clear. I don't want to state him for him, but I, I believe his, he's very clear. There should be no laws regarding how many people on um, promoting or not promoting. The government should not have a say as to what people choose to do on their own with regard to having children, either direction. I think he would also say, if you, if you promote it, you're also going to get to coercion somehow. I think he would say something similar to what you said, but that I think his basic thing is the government is just, it's not, doesn't belong in the bedroom. And I'm wondering if, if he came to that from, but he also... So the Population Media Center makes movies and radio shows where characters be our role models, modeling certain values, and people can listen to it on the radio or watch it on TV, or they cannot. It's up to them. And the effect is that people have role models making decisions that generally they wouldn't see otherwise. And I don't think he's doing anything to stop people from doing something similar with different role modeling, different behavior. And I don't think I don't, I don't think it's saying you should. I we're the listener, we're both smiling because of the cars honking outside my window. It's not outside yours, <laughs> and uh, or maybe I don't know. 
but I don't hear anything. And I don't think he's saying what's good, bad, right, or wrong. I think he's just saying, here's some behavior that you can learn from if you want to. Yeah, and the Christian worldview would actually see good, right, bad, wrong, and it would have objective, you know, transcendent truths that we're thinking through that on that we would then seek to align ourselves with. And would and we don't just believe these are things that are Christian. We believe uh, things like the family unit, children, the goodness of that, the way it affects society is the natural normative function that is undergirding all of uh, reality, but then also is undergirding all moral social orders. So he's not telling, he's not compelling anyone, but if he's making choices, so the choices of behavior to model could have good or, good or bad connected to it. Yeah. And, and we would say like, well, it depends. I'm not sure. I haven't watched the video, so I don't know what you're saying. He's what he exactly would be modeling, but like the idea of modeling, you know, it being a really good public thing for there to be children being born without parents, you know, two parents or things like that would not be in line with the public good in, in the Christian worldview. If that clarifies, I'm trying to, trying to make sense of what you're bringing in with him, if that helps. I haven't listened to the shows myself or watched the shows, but it's possible that he's modeling behavior that could be good. It's possible he could be modeling behavior that's sinful. It would depend on what he's modeling. Yep. Okay. And if what he's modeling is in accord with both nature, the way God made it, and then how that, in, how that is fulfilled and brought up and in the church and in, in the work of Christ. So, yeah, so we would have, we would have categories that we'd have to think through it. So, yeah. All right. So just that he's not coercing and he's promoting anti, promoting against having laws on it. That's interesting on its own, but that's not the full story. You have to look at the, the details of what's being modeled. Yeah. The idea of it just not being coercive doesn't make it somehow neutral because ideas have consequences. And if you're putting them forward as a good when they're actually not in accord with reality or the way that God has ordered this world, we would say it's fundamentally not good and we would reject it. So yeah. So just, yeah, the idea of just saying, well, I'm not going to force you. I'm giving freedom. We actually see like freedom, true freedom from a Christian perspective is always going to be in line with God's nature and the way that God has ordered the world, the laws that God, that God has established, things like that. So it's not going to go against that. And we believe that the way creation works, the way the world functions, it will not be blessed, you know, to not operate in the way God has created the world to be. So yeah, just saying, well, I'm not going to coerce, but I'm simply going to put this stuff out that is actually going, is not in line with that would not be moral in our estimation. Now I would say, I don't think the government should necessarily come into that individual and be like, you cannot talk to anybody about this in any way. Like we do believe in freedom of speech and things like that. So I wouldn't want to, you know, dominate society in that way. But I don't think it's moral to simply say, well, because I'm not coercing, because it's non-coercive, I'm just giving, showing you that it can work out well, that that would be something we would say, no, it, if it's not in accord with truth, then it's wrong. Okay. Yeah. So if you try to coerce into good, well, the good is good, but the coercion might be a problem. Yes. But, yeah. but if you try not to coerce evil, that's evil is still a problem. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's because we're operating on a moral, morally objective scale, right? So it's not just, it's not just the human intention behind what's going on, but it's also is the thing that's being promoted itself in line with the truth. So say that there's someone in Babylon and they're seeing this mm-hmm. tower, they're seeing this too many people, no, not too many people, too high density people, I guess. Well, and let, let me be clear. Like, I'm not saying that the, the story of Babel, the main takeaway 
being overpopulation in too close of an area. The, the story in the biblical context is God told them to spread out over the world as the first team is created. And in the story, they're trying to build up to God to show him that they're bigger than him. So there's, there's a lot more going on in the text. The text is showing that humanity is exalting itself against God and disobeying him, not that cities are somehow, or that large population. So I don't want, so just to be clear what I'm not saying that that biblical story is teaching us. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I didn't mean to tap into more than, uh, what I wanted to get at was if someone, you said, if someone is this believing Christian and feels okay. as you do, and they're in a place where they feel like there's too many people here, I don't want too many people here. I, yeah, yeah. And they felt like in order for, there would be greater flourishing if, what you said at the beginning was you could see why people who live in some places would say, are more prone to saying this is overpopulated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That would mean that, could there be Christians who feel and believe as you do? Could they possibly be, be at a place where they would say, we've, done, we've made a mistake here and we have to fix that mistake. And what reveals the mistake is, something about the density of population. No. So th- yeah, that, w- that would not be the result. I mean, throughout history, Christians have even been willing to stay in areas and die with people, like particularly in like the middle ages. And, and when uh, there was just so much more death and disease spread and things like that, a lot of times Christians would stay in those areas knowing that they put it, were putting themselves at risk to take care of other people as an act of love, even though it might cost them their own lives. Like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Exactly. Yeah. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a fantastic example of that um, within Nazi Germany. And so Christians are willing to do that. But to say the change required is we need to stop having children. No, we, we would actually say, well, all right, let's think as a society, are there enough people here to maybe move and establish somewhere else? Like we'd have conversations, like those would be the conversation we'd be willing to have. But to say, hey, we have a lot of people in a really small area. Let's have a discussion about having less children. That would be completely antithetical to Christian thought. But we would be willing to consider other options of spreading out or things like that. So I think it's a really great question, though, and helps maybe clear up something from earlier. But we would not say, yeah, controlling population is the way forward. We would think, how can we clean up the town more? Like we think, okay, well, what, you know, we'd want to ask, what are the reasons for people? the overpopulation and the mess. Could we, could we think of how to keep this area cleaner? Could we start teams of people to do street watches of cleaning more? Could we become more involved in even maybe fixing some old abandoned warehouses up that could become apartment spaces to spread out the town a little bit? You know, I'm all for conversations like that. Christians would be all in on that. But I wouldn't even say last resort. Just a, a non, non-starter is to say decrease population or not decrease, but stabilize and stop until we get this figured out. We would look into constructive options of spreading out so that more people could live, not so that we could stabilize society. Because we believe a flourishing society is, is what we're looking for, not a stable society. We want to see a society being fruitful and multiplying in accord with the scripture, not just can we survive in this small area and what do we do to keep it that way. So, so when I look at the data and it says to me that if we don't change there's a very strong risk of a lot of people dying. I think that's your interpretation of the data. That's not what the data is saying. Is what I, th- that would be my point. So I'm probably misinterpreting. Yeah. Yep. And here's a story that keeps running through my head. And it's, I don't believe it's a biblical story. I don't know where I heard it from. Uh, <laughs> and you've probably heard it. It's like uh, a storm is going to come through some town and mm-hmm. uh, they say evacuate. And the guy says, I have faith in God. God will protect me. And then uh, everyone evacuates. And then the police come through and they say, Hey, we, we really got to get you out of here. And he says, no, um, God will protect me. And then uh, the, the, it comes through and the flood's coming through and it's rising and rising. Someone comes by in a boat and says, uh, we got to get you out. And he's like, no, I, 
God will protect me. The helicopter comes by and says, we got to get you. And then he says, no. And then uh, the flood comes up and he dies and he's at the gates. And he says, I thought you were going to protect me. How come you didn't help me? And he said, I sent you a cop. I sent you a boat. I sent you a helicopter. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know if it's funny, <laughs> if it's funny to you, but the message that it's not a literal thing, but it's saying there may be signs out there that are saying, look at things differently. Mm-hmm. I mean, is it possible that there's that there are signs saying there's different ways to interpret this? There's different things to read this. Is that possible? No, because we would say because God has spoken and told us what some of those solutions are already. So the, the reason it wouldn't line up with that exact story, which I think has a beneficial moral takeaway to it, you know, in the right situation, where the analogy breaks down in comparison, compared to this situation, is the storm that, it, that, that is being alleged is one that is not, uh, that, that we'd say is not being driven by the data, is not, uh, does not have interpretive validity. But beyond that, even, the, the potential threats that we do agree with that are out there, we believe can be dealt with through a lot of other means, not the population. Like the ideas, like I said, of spreading out, of taking better stewardship of our, of our lands, things like that. We believe those things are what God has told us to do. So we would say the idea of being fruitful and multiplying and being stewards of the land, taking care of the world that God has given us as part of our mandate, that is the boat that God has sent. That is you know, the, uh, the policeman that have showed up and talked to us, God has told us in his word authoritatively what we're to do. So we would say, this is what we do. So we're at an hour and I, yeah. I could easily keep going and yeah. I hope we yeah. continue the conversation, mm-hmm. but it's been, I've been asking a lot of questions. Is there anything that you are curious about or how about, I do have a couple, but I'd like to keep this to an hour for the sake of our, our listeners. How about we plan on doing a conversation next time where I ask some more questions? Would that be, I think that'd be great. Yeah, that works for me. Great. Yeah. I do want to keep this conversation going. I, cause I, you know, I, I hope, you know, we disagree. And like I've been said earlier, I, and, and I want to be clear on this, like, I don't find it, what you're putting forward to be necessarily like, it's not noble because I don't believe it accords with biblical truth. So it's not like I'm waiting for the category where I, like one day I'll agree with you and, you know, one day we'll find something that will perfectly, you know, satisfy both of us. But the conversation I love and I'm, you know, all for having, having them and continuing them. So yeah, I, I do have some questions that as you were asking me and I was answering that popped into my head. So I'll have to take note of those. And next time we can uh, continue this uh, discussion. All right. So I'll wrap up there. And after we hang up, after we stop recording, we'll, we'll schedule the next one and the listeners will get to hear that. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks. Okay. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future. Step-by-step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.